You're listening to Highlights from One Planet podcast interview with Dean Spade, an organizer, speaker, and author, and a professor at Seattle University School of Law. Spade has been organizing racial and economic movements for queer and trans liberation for the past 20 years. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. The afterword that I wrote to the second edition summarizes what some of the big themes in normal life are that were really central. The belief that marginalized and hated populations can find freedom by being recognized by law, allowed to serve in the military, allowed to marry, and protected by anti-discrimination law and hate crime statutes is a central narrative of the United States. Politicians, primary school textbooks, and the corporate media tell us the story that the United States left ugly histories of white supremacy behind through a civil rights movement that changed hearts, minds, and especially laws to eradicate racism and bring freedom to all. This simplified narrative is relentlessly reiterated in U.S. culture and has played a starring role in the past four decades of lesbian and gay rights advocacy, where the analogy to the Black civil rights movement has been a consistent rhetorical tool. I argue that social movements must abandon the widely held belief that oppressed people can be freed by the United States legal system or legal recognition and inclusion if we are to truly address and transform the conditions of premature death facing impoverished and criminalized populations right now. There's been two queer and trans movements. There are two main threads, and one of them should just be understood as conservative. If it's about being pro-police, getting to have gay people be in the FBI and the CIA, like literally, you know, like getting to have gay people be soldiers in U.S. military imperialism, that is a conservative right-wing politics. It's complicated. In the U.S., the idea of queer and trans people is considered like, you know, abhorrent to the right wing. And so then, therefore, anything you do that's pro-gay is supposed to be like left or liberation. But it's not. So in reality, in the U.S., there's always been these two threads. There's been what became highly visible, that very conservative gay and lesbian rights politics. But there's also always been an anti-racist, anti-colonial, queer and trans politics like that has centered poverty and race and colonialism. It just doesn't get the headlines of the corporate media or it doesn't get sponsored by like Budweiser because of what it is about. And that's the same way in, in feminism, right? In feminism, there is like a white women's framing that's very limited to accessing, you know, certain kinds of positions, like we're going to have liberation when women run the big defense contractors and when women are in the military. And then there's always been like a women of color, feminist, anti-colonial feminist framework that's like, no, we won't have gender liberation until we end colonialism, until we end racism. So these two threads in any movement produce really different agendas for transformation, right? Like it's like, who are you thinking about when you imagine the subject of this liberation and what kinds of problems do they have in their life? So if you're thinking that the subject of this liberation is like a white gay man who wants to marry his partner from England so they can have immigration and come over, that's going to be a different policy agenda than if you think the subject of this is a Latina trans woman who's in the detention center. Like she has a different set of things that need to change for her to be free and well and survive. You know, the politics of the kind of intersectional formations I'm talking about, we believe in starting with who's in the most danger and building our agenda based on that. So if you fix things for that woman in the detention center, inevitably things will have gotten better for that white guy who wants to marry his partner because he will have dealt with this horrible border system. But it, but you could fix it for him and not fix it for her, right? So what we want to do is, you know, I've historically talked about this as like a trickle up justice. Like we want to go to where people are facing the worst dangers and be like, what would the solution look like there? And inevitably that'll help people who are in less danger. And it's also just ethical. Like if there's a bus accident, we're going to like go try to deal with who's bleeding out before we go with like who got a small bump, right? Right. Like and that, unfortunately, in, in the U.S., there's been a long history of social movements abandoning people who are in the worst danger and instead choosing to focus on people who are the most palatable to those in power. 
So being like, oh, what about the immigrant who has no criminal history and, and isn't the valedictorian and wants to serve in the U.S. military? And maybe we can get that person and could, could go to college paying for it themselves. Let's get that person a, a pathway to immigration. That's a common thing. And let's find the trans person who people don't know is trans when they see them and they have a job and they're white and they have citizenship and they've never been in prison. When we choose those people as our like our mascots and we articulate an idea that's who's deserving of rights, that's often the way it's framed. Like we're hard workers or like we're citizens. Those kinds of talking points, that framing affirms the current system that keeps certain people hyper disposable and in danger. And so you see this across social movements about every issue is like, are we going to dig into where the worst dangers are and where the most complex harms are happening? It's like, how are we going to create an agenda that would actually solve things for people who have more complex targeting happening to them? And how can everybody be in solidarity and have everybody get behind that agenda instead of having the people who have an easier path to getting in on the current systems kind of like leave everyone else behind? I have been active in trying to support movements for Palestinian liberation, especially from the U.S. That feels really significant because we fund Israeli apartheid. The U.S., you know, is the big donor for that um, horrible colonial project. And I'm Jewish and there's a way in which the project of Israeli colonialism is done in the name of Jews. And it's really important, I think, for Jews to be like, no, that. I don't, that doesn't make me safe. That's not what I want for the world. That doesn't improve my life as a Jewish person. That's not what I'm seeking. And then also, I think in, in, the, in the years that I've been really active on this in the last 20 years, there's been a particular focus for Israel to market itself as like this modern, innovative, technologically savvy, diverse country. And it's been about, it's, it's an explicit effort to rebrand the country, which people all over the world see as like an apartheid state. And so they've branded that in part by something that people call pinkwashing, which is they've done a lot of marketing to say like, hey, we're gay inclusive. We care about queer and trans people. And they've done a lot of marketing around the fact that gay people can serve in their military and trans people can. And that kind of use of queer and trans liberation symbols and ideas to cover over colonialism is so dangerous and terrible. And so there's been a lot of pushback by queer and trans activists all over the world against that, that I've been part of. And I made a documentary that people can watch about this that's free online called pinkwashingexposed.net. And it's captioned in a bunch of different languages in case that's a useful idea. And part of the reason we made that documentary is because the Israeli consulate and government will pay and different Zionist organizations will pay people to do these tours. And so they'll bring like gay movies from Israel to your town or they'll bring gay speakers from Israel to your town. And people don't know that it's propaganda for colonialism. And, uh, you know, pinkwashing is something the U.S. government also does. The U.S. government, you know, Obama's second term was all about being like, look, I'm a gay friendly president. Meanwhile, I'm, you know, keeping people in Guantanamo and, you know, doing drone strikes and, and you know, Biden's the same way. Like they love to like push forward a gay friendly agenda. That's very thin, That's just symbols. It's not actually changing the lives of queer and trans people on the ground. It's a very intense, high stakes adversarial situation in which it's so vital for us all to come out on the side of justice. I would never have anticipated kind of like a, the mainstreaming of trans stuff generally that happened around 2013. Like there was 2014, there was just like a sudden mainstreaming. Caitlyn Jenner was on the cover of Vanity Fair. We started to see trans people represented in like TV shows a bit more. That mainstreaming was surprising. I think it's really important to say that mainstreaming, I think people assume that it's liberatory if you see more of a group of hated people in public roles or something. But generally what happens is that you get like the deployment of deserving figures like Caitlyn Jenner or Laverne Cox, like look at these beautiful trans women, they're okay, but it actually can often reifies stigma around people who are still being seen as disgusting or seen mm -hmm. as unacceptable. And, and usually what happens is there's also kind of moment of like, these people, they're actually okay. Let's do some very thin policy solutions about their problems that don't necessarily 
help them at all. So things like anti-discrimination laws and hate crime laws that kind of say we're equal under the law, but don't really change the conditions in people's lives at all. One danger of having all this anti-trans legislation popular is that people think, oh my God, the answer is in the law. So it's true that bad laws are bad, but like the amount of harm in trans people's lives often doesn't matter about the laws in the jurisdiction. You can live in a jurisdiction that has a law that says trans people are equal and you can still be a trans woman put into the men's prison. That's typical, right? Or you can't get into the homeless shelter, right? Like, like, or you could live in a jurisdiction that has really bad anti-trans law and you could actually have a community of people who are providing you things you need and you feel really safe. Like, it's so much more complicated. It's not just like the law determines how our lives are. And that's really important because it helps us know how to fight back. And so if we become only obsessed with changing the law, well, most of us can't do anything about the law in Tennessee. Like I can't sit here in Washington state and be like, what's going on in Tennessee? When in reality, I know people who are sending medications to people in Tennessee. That's mutually like the direct stuff or sending money to people in Tennessee who are getting out of prison, trying to figure out how to support them. Here in Seattle, where I live, trans people are also homeless. Like, and trans people are getting out of foster care unhoused. And, you know, there's so much I can do right here instead of being like all that matters is the law show. And it feels like a celebrity sideshow of like, what are politicians doing? Oh, look at those terrible politicians. I hope they do the right thing or look at that good one. I hope they fix it. And that's very disempowering for us politically. We could just be like, oh, no, I can do stuff right now in solidarity with people right where I already am, wherever we already are. Trans people are suffering. So a lot of what my work is about is this story that we're going to fix things through law or that law totally determines our life is really disempowering. And we want to move towards what can we actually do to create the conditions to survive right now. And when we talk about today's conditions, we have to talk about ecological crisis. Like things are getting way hotter really fast in every way. So everyone in our communities is facing a much worse danger. If you live in substandard housing and now it's flooding in New York City, that's going to be much worse than it was before it was flooding. On every front, our food systems are in crisis, our energy systems are in crisis. And so the more mutual aid work we do to build community connection, to know our neighbors, to know how to get things we need to each other, to learn how to make decisions together, to learn how to act when crisis comes up and not call the police or other things like that that are harmful, the more ready we are for the next disasters that are coming next month and next month and next month for the rest of our lives. And so to me, mutual aid is both the way to be more politically effective, also the way to build activated, mobilized communities instead of passive communities that just wait to vote and hope that the politicians do the right thing and like watch TV and get stressed out. And it's a way to prepare for the current and coming crises that are going to define the rest of our lives. When I teach it with my students, it's like, I imagine I'm holding lenses like, okay, what happens if I look at this through an environmental justice lens? What happens if I look at this through a feminist lens? What happens if I look at this through a disability justice lens? And being like, we're going to use all the lenses all the time. We're not going to like only look at this through one lens and have single issue politics that produce some really dangerous things. Like when people have single issue politics, they often join up with people who should be their enemies. You know what I mean? They're like, oh, yeah, this candidate vote, voted well on this gay thing. So that's great. We don't care that they're anti-abortion or we don't care that they like supported the construction of a new jail or that they and that happens a lot. And, and that's the pinkwashing. Like you see like a lot of mayors and governors and stuff in recent years and presidents being like, oh, yeah, we love gay marriage. Meanwhile, let's kill all the poor people. We want to make sure we don't get fooled into joining agendas that actually aren't beneficial when most queer people are disproportionately poor. So if they if this candidate says they love gay people, but they hate poor people, they actually hate gay people. And so just move. Moving past that kind of single issue politics requires this de-siloing. And that's a lot of work because of these histories of elites, I would say, of elites creating social movement frames that are single issue and exclusive. And so that you could imagine like a gay, a pro-military gay politics. I mean, that should be unimaginable, but it is it's very imaginable, very visible. And so we have to really do a lot of unpacking to that's the storytelling is so important because the storytelling about our lives, about how our lives are actually interconnected rather than the lie that they are in these silos can help us build that solidarity.
There's just a broader thing about divesting from legislation as the Georgia win our fight. Like the U.S. legal system or the Washington or Seattle or whatever legal system I'm in is a colonial legal system that is designed to preserve capitalist extraction and all the racial dynamics required to produce racial capitalism. Of course, this system is already completely captured by our opponents. And anything that looks like it's good for us is probably actually not. And that is really hard for people to digest because we're told that law is where, I mean, I, I think it goes so deep. Even people who I think really are trying to push that out of their mind, it's still so easy for us to think, oh, if we could get the right law, it would work. I often think of power as very top down. It's like when someone tells you, like, you can't come in here, you can't do that. And what that is one way that power works. But power also works through things that we might consider more insidious, like norms. So like one way that power works is like it sets norms. So it's not just you can't be like that. Don't wear that because you're a girl. It's also teaching you from early childhood to think of yourself in a gendered role and then self-enforce. So there's a whole world of like us all enforcing on ourselves, all the norms of society. I need to be good. I need to be in my own racial category, gender category, a million, million, million unconscious rules that we embody. Like I need to be seen as good so that I'll survive. It's pretty high stakes in childhood and it continues to be like, oh, don't go out alone. And there's high stakes, like you'll be arrested if you're talking to yourself on the street or, or you'll, you won't pass your grade or you'll not get a job. We live in a society that lets people fall to the very bottom. So norms are another way that power works, us enforcing them on each other. So another piece of our social movement work can be like, oh, wait, where are we enforcing these on each other? Are there things we're doing in our own social movement group or in our friend circles that are actually enforcing fat phobia or enforcing sexism or racism between us. So that question about norms, how are they already in my head and in my behavior and how can we um, collectively defy them? And another kind of way that power works that I talk about in normal life is through like population management, which is the ways that whole big systems, like the system of having ID and the system of having databases that all of us are in and the system of immigration that, ha that has all these standards inside it that are like gender markers on ID or rules in immigration, which health tests you need to take and what kinds of police contact you need to not have had. Like those kinds of things or what, even what country you're from and what the immigration quotas are and what the visa quotas are. And the, all of that stuff manages us in a really big way, like a population control way that's like these people get in and these people stay out or these people are shuttled towards health and these people are shuttled towards like like, you know, there's no hospital in this whole area of, of the state or people who have these markers on, on their IDs can't get these medications. There's not like one dude at the top who planned it, you know, so it's not like there's one guy being like, don't do this. It's like a really complex system of maldistribution of life chances. And so we are produced as subjects at all these levels that make our lives shorter, literally, or that make us be more likely to have certain kinds of violence happen to us, right? Make us be more likely to have certain kinds of jobs or school access or whatever. And so what we want to do is think about resistance in all those places. And so that it starts to feel actually like there's a lot more resistance possible. If I just thought all I could resist was when someone says, don't do that, it's very limited. And then part of the problem, too, is like if you think all power is when they say don't do that, like if they say don't be gay, that's disgusting, that's wrong, then you will miss that they might say gay is wonderful while they use that to kill people. I just want to say a lot of my work is about rejecting progress narratives. And that can be really hard when there's been a moment of mainstreaming because it looks like progress, but actually there's usually something insidious also going on, plus backlash that's targeted at certain people. I would love to see some structured abandonment. I'm like, I'd love it if the U.S. government would be like, gotta go. But unfortunately, it's heavily, heavily, heavily militarizedly managing all of us to our deaths. You know, like it's destroying our planet, especially the U.S. government. The U.S. military is the largest polluter in the world. That is That dovetails with being organized with each other in terms of basic survival. So to me, that's like the role of mutual aid in mobilizing us and also helping us survive.
the really deadly conditions that are facing our communities right now. So a major emphasis for me with my students is the work you do that's most transformative in your life will not be paid. Don't look to try to like have your social movement role be coming from being paid because all the paid work is being paid for by the government or rich people and they are not interested in funding strategies that will work. <laughs> so like the more radical stuff, the more direct action stuff, the more collective action stuff is not paid. To have a critique of the nonprofit system and those limits of legislative advocacy and the stuff that we're pushed into, that's another thing I want that as a takeaway for them. And just to have experiences of collective action to study, how is anyone going to survive this? And so being like, oh, I don't have to just be really upset about how terrible things are. I can study. I can read. I can watch documentaries. I can listen to podcasts. I can find out what people have tried and are trying. And it's like endless. And it's beautiful. And it's not going to give me a definitive plan. It's like, oh, no, I'm in it with everybody else. I need to be in study groups with other people. I need to be in groups where we're like trying to hash out and really being in it together in a curious, open way. For me, that's like that makes me want to live. And it's really hard to be alive right now because things are really bleak. And so it's not about turning away from that bleakness. It's about being like, wow, this is a level of urgency. How can this motivate me to do things I really care about and to not do things I don't care about? How can I divest from the expectations this system has created in me about, you know, climbing some kind of hierarchy or some kind of dominance and instead be like, what's it like to be doing things with people where I feel the most connected and alive about resistance? And also where I'm able to be like, oh, wait, I've been doing something. I don't think it works. I'm going to do something else. Not get attached to one tactic or one role. Like that, kind of, for me, that kind of flexibility, that kind of like lifelong learning, that, that, those qualities I think are hopefully beneficial to us as we try to build community together to do stuff that, that works or to help people survive. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.